Judges chapter 17 to chapter 18. This is what Holy Scripture says. There is a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, 
how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites armed with their weapons of war stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. 
It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Judges, chapter 17. As you're doing that, uh, and you own a beige Corolla, you may want to check to see if your lights have remained on, or else uh, some nice person will give you a boost after the service. Beige Corolla, 518 or something, your last three digits of your license. Uh, I did check this morning with uh, some friends who know, uh, have you heard of El Dia de los Muertos? El Dia de los Muertos, the Mexican holiday, which is the Day of the Dead. The Day of the Dead often occurs around Halloween, uh, so it'll be soon. Uh, parades, altars, uh, Hot rods decorated with a lot of flowers, a particular flower which I cannot pronounce. Uh, crosses, crucifixes, religious phrases, undertones to the entire thing. Kind of a mishmash of ancient Aztec religion, Roman Catholicism, local superstition, all stuck in a blender. And you get El Dia de los Muertos, a very good example of what we would call syncretism, which is uh, the idea of taking various parts, whatever you like, sort of, out of various religions and putting them in the blender and out comes your porridge, your religion of choice. Syncretists, by the very nature of what they're doing, actually believe that they're good with God. That's why you're trying to like get all these different bits of different religions. You want to make sure you've got your bases covered with God. And so they would see, for instance, no contradiction in worshiping Jesus and worshiping the dead. Or if you like, in the day in which we're looking at, worshiping Yahweh and worshiping Baal. Modern syncretists can sing, for instance, God keep our land glorious and free. And then drunkenly curse the referee who just made a bad call at the hockey game you sang the national anthem at. Presidents, prime ministers, premiers, they can all say God bless America, God bless Ontario, God bless Toronto. I don't know if anybody's God bless Toronto. Uh, 
And those same politicians can then go to a mosque and participate in that service later in the afternoon, go to a synagogue, participate in that service, and maybe that evening attend a cathedral and participate in that service as if there's no difference between the three. My point in this is pointing out that it's very easy to mouth Christian words and do Christian-y kind of things and have no clear, absolute belief in God himself. That means you could be sitting here today and be a faker. (laughs) Uh, Maybe even a self-deceived faker. In your heart, you're a syncretist. And what's sad to me about syncretism is that you're on your way to hell even though you think you're on your way to heaven. This is the self-deception of syncretism. So Judges chapter 17, uh, we're preaching through the book of Judges week by week. If this is your first Sunday here, you landed on a doozy because uh, this is just, there's a whole lot of weird things going on here and I'll try to unpack them for us. But I think what is happening here is, is the Bible is looking at you this morning and, and just asking you the question, are you sure that you're right with God? Are you, are you sure? And I hope everybody can leave here thinking, yeah, I am sure. But maybe if you're not, this text will help you. So Judges chapter 17. Let me lay out just uh, five little quick observations that are just going to help you understand the seven points I'm going to make, <laughs> okay? So please don't panic at the numbers. Uh, the first little observation. We're done with the judges, the people who are judges, okay? We're at that part in the book of Judges where there's two events that are put into the end of the book of Judges. They're not about actual judges, meaning judge, like deliverers, saviors. Samson is the last of the judges, so we're finished with the judges. Number two, the timing of the last two events in the book is kind of disputed. I'll tell you what I think it is. It's tricky to figure out, and there's good arguments on either side. I think this is describing things that were occurring through all that stuff we just read about the judges. I I could be wrong. It could be things that follow after Samson and sort of lead into the book of Kings. But I kind of think these are events that took place during the days of the judges when Israel was really off their rocker. It was in the days when the average person of Israel was a syncretist. So you grew up hearing about Yahweh, you grew up, you know, maybe going to synagogue here and there, and you kind of had a little bit of that, but you also had some Baal and Ashtaroth, and, and you, just, you just sort of put it all together, okay? So that's maybe the timing of when this took place. Third thing, the, the whole rest of the book is these two stories. So we're going to look at one of these stories, and then, God willing, in the weeks to come, we'll look at the next But these stories are framed by a phrase that is probably familiar to you. There was no king in Israel. And I think the author is implying by that that had there been a king, that king would have kept us religiously on track, which is one of the reasons I think uh, the, the timing of this. I think he's, he's sort of idealizing what the king will do. If there had been a king, if we get a king, the king will keep us religiously true. 
So Judges 17, 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 18.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. 19.1, in those days there's no king in Israel. 21.25, the very last verse of the book. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So two stories that are highlighting what it's like when there's not spiritual leadership. Number four, this is the important, most important-ish one. <laughs> the method that the author uses in his storytelling is unique in that he never says, oh, what they did here was really bad. Or, or something like, uh, you know, God was very displeased with this. And we, we read statements like that throughout earlier parts of Judges, but you never see that here. The, the author simply tells the story and I think puts a couple of landmines in the story that if you have eyes to see, will kind of explode everything. <laughs> so that method is important in part because I think sort of from a literary standpoint, what he's doing is, is the way that he's telling the story is, is demonstrating to you how easy it is to believe you're worshiping the real God in a really good way when in reality, he's abandoned you to your folly. So these stories, these last two stories, depict people who talk like they know Yahweh, but would hear from Yahweh in the day of judgment, depart from me, for I never knew you. Last little quick observation, number five. This, this story we're looking at, chapter 17 and 18, has three sort of plot lines or three characters, and that can be confusing because at one point they all merge together. So I'm just gonna lay them out for you in case you're wondering what's going on with this guy and that guy. So you got the thieving Micah with his house of gods, his used God sales lot. <laughs> and then you got the thieving Levite who lives by his career ambitions. And then you got the thieving clan of Dan and their hostile invasion of a peaceful people. And these three storylines all intersect at the end. So I'm telling you that because on the front end, you can be left kind of bewildered, like who, where did they come from and how do all these things fit together? Thankful for the way John read through that story, so helpfully showing us just in the reading of it where it all sort of comes in the end. So these two events then, at the end of the book of Judges, are included to show you what false worship gets you. That's why they're there. It's saying this is how stupid false worship is. It will lead you to do cringeworthy and stupid things. The false worship that this story deals with is kind of like Day of the Dead. The author is describing for you a season of syncretism where people are grabbing a little Canaanite religion, a little Old Testament here, mashing it together into an unrecognizable, self-oriented mush and concluding wrongly that they're right with God and going to heaven. Isn't that sad? To think that you would spend your whole life wrong, thinking you were going to heaven? These false worshipers here don't even understand that. And their, their story is here so that you and I can learn from their negative example. It's not being held up as a good example. It's being held up as a bad example. 
the story is here so that you and I will ask the question, is this me? Am I doing this today? So I'll give you seven ways you can easily trick yourself into thinking that you are right with God when you're not. And I might, if I have time at the end, even show you a couple easily, easy ways we fall into this today. Consumerism, superstition. But let's make our way through the narrative. I'll give you each of these statements as a just because statement. Just because of this doesn't mean that. Okay? Here we go. Number one. Just because you talk about God does not mean you know God. Just because you talk about him doesn't mean you know him. So verse 1, there's a man in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Micah. He said to his mother, it's kind of a weird start to the story, right? Uh, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it, the curse, in my ears. Behold, the silver's with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by Yahweh. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. His mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, a house of gods, literally. And he made an ephod. Uh, the, the garment you would wear to sort of predict the future. Uh, household gods, little deities, ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That opening paragraph is supposed to leave you a little bit dazed and bewildered. <laughs> what on earth is going on? Everything is out of place here. Micah. His name means who is like Yahweh. It is a declaration of the exclusivity of God, the one true God. There's none like Yahweh. His name is a declaration of faith. But this Micah, he's a thief, an adult thief, steals from his mama, and, and, and now probably because he's worried about the bad karma coming his way from the curse that she pronounced, he confesses his theft. And his mama is not much better. She blesses her son in or by the name of Yahweh. Now, we should just note this. This is also really important. The only people who use the proper name of God in this narrative are the bad guys. Micah, his mom, and later on, the Levite. None of them are the heroes in this story. But they're the only ones who are taking the covenant name of God on their lips. The narrator never speaks of Yahweh. The author, the narrator, does many other places in the book, but not here. And that might be a hint to us. What kind of a hint? Sinful, idolatrous men and women in this story, they're giving credit to Yahweh, but our narrator will have none of that. They might use the name of Yahweh, but they don't have a clue who he really is. So Micah's mom promises to restore to Micah what Micah had restored to her, 
which she sort of does. He gives her the 1,100 pieces of silver, and then he, she gives him 200 of the 11. That's just kind of weird too. And sends it to a silversmith to make a, an, an image. This is a very religiously dysfunctional family. <laughs> this is just a dysfunctional family to begin with. I mean, she names her son who is like the Lord. And by her actions, she answers the question, this carved image is like the Lord. Any Israelite who had read his Bible would be flabbergasted at that. Second commandment, Deuteronomy 5.8, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Same word. I can give you lots. Exodus 34, 17. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Same word. I could give you both in one verse. Deuteronomy 27, 15. Cursed is the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. An abomination to the Lord. So how on earth is it that the people in Israel who have the law saying clear and obvious things like this can somehow mangle up the worship of Yahweh with images and idols? The same way a Roman Catholic priest will instruct you to call him father, even though his Bible prohibits that. When Jesus said... Call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. The same way about your Roman Catholic or other religious friend who might speak very freely about Jesus, grace, salvation, even justification, but have completely missed the meaning of all those words and functionally are just attempting to earn their own salvation by doing enough good things. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes most. I, I, I help old ladies across the street. I, when I'm, you know, I, I do this, I do that. When their own Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not your own doing, it's the gift of God. The only way to be saved is by grace, the unmerited free action of God not your good works. You don't even have any good works. Just because people talk about God, about Jesus, about the Bible does not mean they're truly saved or truly worshiping God in the ways that God requires. All of us are kind of born professional syncretists. We, we, we're just prone to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, Sprinkle in some religious jargon, add a few good deeds, and bingo boingo, we're good with God. At least the God that we've created in our own image. So this little opening paragraph is serving as a mirror for you. You may claim to be a follower of Jesus, but do you have a room in your heart that's filled with images, ephods, little gods of your own making, and your own self-appointed little internal priest. If you do, then your heart is a shrine to Satan, not the temple of the Holy Spirit. What was everyone, what was the thing that everybody was doing that was right in their own eyes? That, that repeated phrase. Everyone was doing what was right in there. What was the thing that they were doing? Worshiping. 
it's no different in our day, right? Oh, you worship God your way, I'll worship God my way. Uh, your God's this way, well, you know, the God I worship is this way. You forget that Jesus said, I am the way. And so this story in Judges turns, it gets even weirder. Here's the second thing. Just because you do religious things does not make them right. So there's this young man of Bethlehem, verse 7, uh, in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. He sojourned there. Levites sojourn because they're not allowed to own land. So wherever they live, they're sojourning. They're, they're guests, sort of. And they're to be provided for by the rest of the Israelites. The man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he sojourned, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Okay, that Micah. Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I've got a Levite as a priest. So here's our wandering Levite. Not told his name. Not yet. Levites, men of the tribe of Levi, don't own land. If you, uh, Aaron is of the tribe of Levi, and if you're one of Aaron's descendants, you can be a functioning priest. But if you're just a Levite, you're like a cousin of Aaron, you're like an assistant priest. This man appears to be one of those assistant priests. In fact, we know he is. He's, uh, he's not of the line of Aaron. The Levites were given that unique role, by the way, in Israel because of their devotion to God. I, I wanted to go to, we don't have time, I wanted to go to Numbers 25, Exodus 32. The, the reason they're, they're given this privileged position in Israel is because when everybody else was abandoning God, the Levites stayed true. This Levite's different. By the way, we're never told what happened to Micah's son. Remember that? He appointed his son as a priest, and then the new guy shows up. It's like, see a son? I don't know what happened to him. Uh, and uh, Micah's thinking, I got me a red-blooded Levite right here, man. So this is lucky. I'm, I've got an authentic priest. See you later, son. And not, the, the text makes clear that the, the motivation's on the part of the Levite, too. Like at verse 10, you can have silver, a suit of clothes, and your living. Now, this Levite is not the first and certainly not the last to get into the ministry for the money. It's interesting that when the apostles in the New Testament warn the church about false preachers or wolf pastors, they often note two things about them. They're sexual perverts and they're, uh, they love money. Which means if you're spending any of your time at all watching some of those yahoos online uh, of uh, their extravagant clothes and their shiny bling and their $2,000 sneakers, is that even possible? And, and pockets full of cash from the poor, then I say shame on you. Because those guys are out to, and women, they're out to tickle your ears and kill your soul. Don't give them an ounce of your attention unless it's to warn other people away from them. This Levite, as we shall see, 
could care less about God. His main interest is his retirement fund. Ten pieces of silver a year to be a nice man's private priest, that sounded golden to the money-grubbing Levite. My dad was a florist, flower shop. And every year or so, we would set up a booth at a wedding show because you're trying to sell flowers to people getting married. And every year, Rent-A-Rev was there with their booth. Rent-A-Rev. Rent-A-Minister. Rent-A-Rev. And so, uh, I would go to them. I was very deeply offended and young and talked too much. So, I would just try to tell them how awful and wrong they were. But it was awful and wrong because they had no church affiliation. They, they could be Catholic or Anglican or Protestant or for Jehovah's Witness for all I know. They could be whoever you wanted them to be. You just rent their services. They will baptize. Uh, they will perform your wedding. They will do your funeral. They're still around today. They're weird. They are professional religious service providers if you can afford them. And this Levite is, is really the same. He's a rent-a-priest. Now, lest you think Micah, the guy who's got the house of gods, lest you think he's somehow innocent in all of this, just look at his motives, right? He's using the Levite as much as the Levite is using him. This relationship is completely transactional. He looks at the Levite as if he were a, like a rabbit's foot, a, a talisman, a lucky charm. Micah said, now I know, verse 13, that Yahweh will prosper me because I got a Levite as a priest. Now I'm going to prosper even more because I've got Yahweh by the throat. Sure you do, Micah. Takes us to number three. Just because you join with other wrong people doesn't make you all right. I mean that both ways. Doesn't make you all right, like Correct. It doesn't mean like you're all right just because there's a bunch of you who are wrong. <laughs> this is where the three storylines intersect for the first time. 18 verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. In those days the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Again, this is one of these little passing statements you easily blow past in your Bible reading. But it is of extreme significance. The tribe of Dan has no land. It shouldn't be that way. God has brought the 12 tribes to the cusp of the promised land, told them, go in, I will be with you, take what I have allotted to you. But if you go all the way back to our very first sermon in Judges, Judges chapter 1, verse 34, you read this, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they, the people, uh, the Amorites, did not allow them, the Danites, to come down into the plain to where their land was. Dan, as a tribe, hid in the hills instead of fighting the enemy with God. This was not commendable. Even though they were a tiny tribe, they served a big God. And their fearful retreat leads to a smudge in the boundary lines between the tribes. Verse 35 of chapter 1, the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Horesh, in Ajalon and in Shael Beam, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them. Ephraim, Joseph. The tribe of Joseph ends up, when Dan takes off for the hills, they're like, well, if you're not going to take it, we'll take it. And that looks even worse on Dan because Ajalon is exactly where Joshua fought against the Canaanites and said, Lord, would you make the sun stand still so that we can have this great victory? And God did that. So the Danites are said, now go into this land that we've already pre-conquered. And they're, no, 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 we're going to run to the hills. 
Dan lacked faith, therefore they lacked land. And nothing has changed between chapter 1 and chapter 17. They've been squished into the fringes of the promised land because they lacked faith in Yahweh. Not because Yahweh was too weak. Yahweh got everybody else into the land. So now, not because of soaring faith, but maybe soaring property values, Dan needs land. There's too many Danites, not enough land. So verse 2, people of Dan sent their five spies, go explore the land. They came, and they end up at the house of Micah. So, okay, now this is why we were learning about Micah, because it's intersecting with these crazy Danites. Five spies go north, and they hear what would be a familiar southern accent. Verse 3, when they're in the house of Micah, they recognize the voice of the young Levite. Recognize the voice, like recognize the accent. They turned aside, said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? He said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me and I've become his priest. Now that's really interesting because the Levite doesn't say Micah has ordained me. He says he hired me. So it's kind of like they pull them aside and, okay, they're Southern, so we'll give it a Southern accent. Y'all, I've just got this spiritual thing going here, right? Like I'm living the good life up here in this North country. This dude's just giving me like 10 pieces of silver a year and it's a set of new duds. Um, so they recognize and like, oh, that's very interesting. I think the five spies file that little bit away in the back of their minds, but because they're superstitious, they then say to him, Inquire of God, not Yahweh, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. Look, this Levite is not the first liar on the planet. He didn't have a clue what Yahweh was saying, but he knew how to pronounce Yahweh's name, and that's good enough for the five spies. Like anybody who's dumb enough to go to a fortune teller, you know that's all fake, right? They could not see that the rent-a-priest was just telling them what they wanted to hear. They're not men who are in search of truth. They want a little supernatural cover just in case they need it. What's important for us to remember is that, okay, now the house of Micah, the house of Dan, the house of Levite, they've all connected. And this, these three strands of faithlessness come together. But this threefold cord will be easily broken. That takes us to number four. Just because events seem to go your way doesn't mean God approves of your actions. All right? Just because things seem to go your way doesn't mean God approves of your actions. So the five guys go look and they find what they were looking for. Verse 7. They came to Laish, saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, quiet, unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's in the earth, possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. That is meant to sound like a premonition. <laughs> Secure, unsuspecting, quiet, wealthy, out in the country where nobody can hear when you cry for help. And the five spies run home to tell their big, brave Danite brothers, verse 8, they came to their brothers at Zorah Eshtael. Their brothers said to them, what do you report? They said, arise, let us go against them. We've seen the land. It's very good. Will you do nothing? 
Do not be slow to go to enter and possess the land. As soon as you go, you'll come to an unsuspecting people land. Spacious, for God has given it into your hands. A place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. Now, I read that because it should sound kind of familiar. Because there's echoes of Moses and Joshua here, right? Spies going into the land. The call to go and divide and conquer. There's echoes, but they're not exactly the same, are they? So we'll come back to Dan and the land of Laish in verse 27. But I need you to just keep that thought in mind as we progress. Because now the Danites decide, okay, time to go get our new home. But as they do, they're going to retrace the path they took, and that's going to bring them to the house of Micah. Number five. Just because that wolf loves you today does not mean that he will not bite you tomorrow. So 600 men, verse 11, of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. They passed on from there, verse 13, to the hill country of Ephraim, came to the house of Micah. Yes, that Micah, he of carved images and fake god shrine house. Verse 14, the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. <laughs> it's a rather opaque language, right? But it appears the five guys are saying to the rest of the tribe, hey dudes, it is a long, long way to Shiloh from up here. Verse 15. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, asked him about his welfare. Now, note this. 600 men of the Danites, armed with weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. So, obviously, the, the wealthy Micah has something of a compound, a walled compound. His house is in there. The Levite's house is in there. The house of the fake gods is in there. And now he's got 600 armed men standing at the gate of said compound. This is what we would call a show of force. But it may not have been necessary because it, Micah doesn't even get mentioned here. It might have been that he wasn't even there. Don't know. But the Levite's there, and so he comes out to talk to them, and as the Levite and the 600 armed Danites are chatting it up, the five guys, the five spies, march into the house of gods, the shrine, and they help themselves. <laughs> so they, they, they uh, verse 17, the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up, entered the, took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, and the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? To which I say, you sniveling little traitor Levite. Because look at what he does not do. He does not demand they stop. He does not sound the alarm. He puts on the air of being, oh, shocked and dismayed. What, oh, oh, what are you doing? And they said to him, verse 19, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? 
Now the they of verse 19 must be the five guys. And they remember what the Levite had told them on their first visit. This is a priest for hire. He's a rent -a rev And so they easily persuade him to make a career move. It's time to climb the ecclesiological ladder, chief. Because look at verse 20. They tell him that. And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Oh, why be a priest for a family of six when you can be a priest for a tribe of 600 armed men and all their kids and livestock and everything else? This Levite is like every other false spiritual leader ever. All he does, he does for money and fame. In a heartbeat, as soon as he sees his platform for ministry expanding and his bank account rising, he goes from asking, oh, 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 what are you doing? To hand those to me, let's get going. There wasn't much Micah could do about it, and the men of Dan knew that, but they set off, they put their children and livestock first so the armed men can be at the back in case Micah tries chasing them, and he does. This is number six. Just because you thought your idols would bless you doesn't mean they will. So they turned, verse 21, departed, putting the little ones and livestock and the goods in front of them. When they got a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out. They overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you come out with such a company? He said, you take my gods that I made? Irony, friends, irony. You take the gods that I made. And the priest? And go away? And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? People of Dan said, hey, we'll release the angry guys amongst us if you, if you try anything. And apparently Micah looks at the numbers, does the math, and he's like, yeah, there's nothing I can do. Bully took my stuff. Now, this is our very last interaction with Micah in the story, and I want to note a couple of things. Remember back in chapter 17, verse 3, mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for the metal image. Verse 5, Micah had a shrine, literally a house of gods, little g, gods. He already had it. And so he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And then he meets the Levite, verse 13. Micah said, now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. I got a little bit of Yahweh. I got a little bit of religious paraphernalia, ephods and priests. I got a little bit of my own local religious traditions. Micah was a syncretist. He is treating the living God as if he were some little territorial demigod fashioning some ridiculous idol and calling that metal thing Yahweh. And then he thinks that by getting a priest from Yahweh's appointed bloodline, he's got all his bases covered. But in the end, look at him. All his gods are taken, his favored priest betrays him, 
And all he can say is, rich as I am, I got nothing left. What have I left? What have I left? Friend, may I tell you, that's where every idol leaves you every time without exception. The genius of idolatry is that it keeps stringing you along, giving you just, of enough, just enough of a hit to think that, oh, next time it's going to really deliver. And you keep feeding and, and coddling and bowing down to this thing that you think you control, never realizing that it owns you. And when it's done with you, it spits you out and abandons you. Idolatry leads to what? Misery is the word. Let's try it again. Idolatry leads to what? Every time. Just read the most recent interviews with Matthew Perry. This is the end of Micah's story. And friend, this will be the end of your story too unless you abandon your idols and turn to the living God. God had told Israel this, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy chapter 6. By the time you get to Judges chapter 2, verse 13, they abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Friend, if you know in your heart of hearts that you love money or sex or the approval of certain people or, or the high of some drug or a comfortable life or fame or business success or, or the calm you experience from over drinking, if you love that more than God, then stop abandoning the living Lord and abandon that lifeless idol. Do whatever it takes to sever your heart allegiance from that fake deity. In every case, point your compass toward Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who came to earth to give his life as a ransom payment to rescue you from all the punishment that you deserve for your years of idolizing things God made rather than worshiping God himself. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved from your sins. This is your only hope for real change. But we've got to conclude the story, number seven. Just because you get what you want in life doesn't mean God has answered your prayers. I read this morning that Matthew Perry prayed for fame. Was it God who gave him that? There's one more phase to this story. Uh, catch up a little bit here with the Dan parade, verse 27. The people of Dan took what Micah had made, the priests who belonged to him, they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. They rebuilt the city, lived in it, called it Dan. 
But the author goes on to say the very end, but the name of the city was Laish at the first. Dan got what he wanted. Was God pleased? I mentioned earlier how there were echoes of coming into the promised land with sort of being seen with Dan going into their land of Laish. I mean, if you think about it, they, they leave. Dan leaves hostile territory. Israel left hostile territory, marched out of Egypt. Dan sent spies ahead. Israel sent spies into the promised land. Dan takes the land, just like Israel conquered and took their land. But there were great differences between the two as well. There was nothing holy about Dan's war on an unsuspecting city. Dan didn't attack fortified cities with God's miraculous help. This is no Jericho. This is a, a, an isolated little town, weak, unfortified. Dan didn't depend on Yahweh, but some silly little idols and a corrupt priest. Dan didn't march into his inheritance. He marched out of it and out of the promised land. With the people of Dan, you get a vivid picture of every liberal mainline denomination in Canada. Pick on the United Church of Canada. You don't even have to believe in God to be a minister in the United Church of Canada. You can be an atheist and be a minister in the United Church of Canada. That is a church, as a denomination, that has a background in and a vocabulary of God and of his word, but no saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is a dead church full of spiritually dead people. There might be some Christians in there, but they need to get out. This city is full of churches like that, full of churches that have religious people in them using religious words who have absolutely no clue who the true God is. It is syncretism. They do what is right in their own eyes. May God have mercy on us all. If you don't believe me that that's what we're supposed to get out of this text, then I'm going to take you to the last two verses because that's where the landmines are planted. Verse 30, and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Aha, the Levite, just called the Levite all through the story. The Levite did this, the Levite did that. Not till the very end are we told the name of the Levite. What's his name? Jonathan. Who's his dad? Gershom. Who's his grandpa? Moses. Yeah, that Moses. The meekest man on all the earth. The man who saw God face to face. The man who lived by faith. The man who in the word of Hebrews was faithful in all God's house. That man had a grandson or the way genealogies work, it might be like several generations down. He has a descendant, a grandson, we'll say, who's nothing more than a sniveling, deceptive, arrogant, self-serving wolf in sheep's clothing. What has happened in Israel? That's how we're supposed to react to that verse. Wait a second, you're telling me the Levite is a descendant of Moses? In fact, there's some textual corruption through the years because people didn't even want to say it. And so they'd add little emendations above the letters of the text to make it not look so much like Moses. That's how bad things are in Israel. 
Even the sons of Moses are kissing the golden calf, and it's not just them. Look at verse 31. So they, the tribe of Dan, now living in Laish, they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Now to see something of the bitter irony of this verse, you go back to 17 verse 5. The man Michael Micah had a shrine. I told you that word shrine is a house of gods, plural. It was this house of gods that the men of Dan stole and set it up again in Laish. And they did that, their house of gods, while the house of God, verse 31, was in Shiloh. There is a place to worship the living God in Israel, Shiloh. The tabernacle is set up. You can go there. You can make your sacrifices. You're to be there three times a year. How bad are things in Israel? Where does idolatry and syncretism land you? Dan has moved out of the promised land, away from the promised blessing, abandoning the promised Savior, and set up their own little house of gods. And we're supposed to read that and think, oh, Lord, forbid that such a thing would ever happen with us. Two questions for you. Number one, do you read your Bible? Got your answer? Number two, have you ever read the whole Bible? If not, how do you know you're not just taking a few favorite Bible phrases and mashing them together with a little bit of Oprah Winfrey, maybe some of your own common sense, and forming your own little idol that you call Jesus? I told you when we began that this syncretism exposes the temptations we face today, we're no different. And when you look at the temptations, it might help reveal to you when you're worshiping God improperly. Two of them, superstition, consumerism. Wanna know if you're a syncretist, maybe not a Christian? How about superstition? If deep, deep down, I can't look in your heart, so I don't know what you really believe, but you know, and if deep, deep down, you trust in the fact that you attend church as the thing that ensures you're gonna get to heaven, then you are no different than Micah rejoicing that he could hire a Levite as a way to force God to bless him. You are superstitious. That's not the gospel. I'll give you another example. If you're more concerned about getting a pastor over to your new apartment or house to pray for it and you, you're more concerned about that than you are about your regular use of God's name in vain, then you are no different than the five spies who want a blessing from some rent rev but not any direction from God's word. You are superstitious you are not godly. Second, consumerism. If you're more concerned about the seating, I hope not, the entertainment value of the band, the taste of the coffee, 
than you are about whether God is worshipped in spirit and truth in this gym, then you are no different than the people of Dan setting up their comfortable little house of gods rather than trucking down to the house of God three times a year in Shiloh. You are a consumer, not a worshiper. This story is showing you that in many ways, syncretism is worse than idolatry. If I'm just a pure idolater, I bow down to Baal, Baal, Baal. But when you put Baal with Yahweh and you act like they're the same, so let me close with this question. Do you find yourself regularly corrected, turned, moved, refocused, humbled, changed in your behaviors by the word of God? Or when it comes right down to it, are you just doing what is right in your own eyes? May God give us grace. Let's pray together. So our Father, we pray that in your mercy and in your kindness, you would guard every heart and do every good work, Lord, to save us from how easily we are deceived by our own selves. Please teach us and lead us and help us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.